Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal. Thank you so much for listening to the GeoTrek podcast. Your involvement has grown our amazing community of worldwide GeoTrekkers. I wanted to share two ways you can be more involved in our community. Please subscribe to our podcast. Your subscription helps us track progress and helps create an environment for us to build more professional partnerships moving forward. I also wanted to encourage you to join the community discussion on social media. Check out our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. This is an interactive place where we discuss articles, podcasts, and other topics on GeoTrek. I often post field notes as well when I'm out there doing scientific research. A lot of our GeoTrekkers have actually informed our research and given us some tips on what we might consider for future topics, as well as important people that we should interview for future podcasts. Thanks again for listening to GeoTrek and being involved in our global GeoTrekker community. Sea level rise has emerged as one of the greatest impacts of climate change. In February 2022, NOAA released the 2022 Sea Level Rise Technical Report. The report, titled Global and Regional Sea Level Rise Scenarios for the United States, provides the most up-to-date sea level rise projections available for all U.S. states and territories out to the year 2150. This report will help communities assess potential changes in average tide heights and height-specific threshold frequencies as they strive to adapt to sea level rise. Sea level rise projections were updated for eight regions, the northeast and southeast Atlantic coast, eastern and western Gulf Coast, northwest and southwest Pacific Coast, as well as the Hawaiian Islands and Caribbean Islands. This report includes observation-based extrapolation of relative sea level rise above a baseline from the year 2000. It shows that the highest levels of relative sea level rise can be expected in the Western Gulf, where more than two feet of relative sea level rise is projected by the year 2050, above 2000 levels, given an intermediate high emission scenario. It's important for people to realize that sea level rise projections are not uniform for the whole world. It really depends where you live. Some places are expected to see faster relative sea level rise rates than others. This report and a renewed focus on sea level rise fits well with a podcast interview I conducted in January 2022 with Dr. Karen Bolter. Dr. Bolter lives in Broward County, Florida, an area of South Florida that has already observed substantial impacts from sea level rise. She has extensive experience interpreting sea level rise impacts and leads climate initiatives which focus on communication that translates information to action. She specializes in GIS analysis of people, cities, and the environment to inform data-driven resilience. She has given two TED Talks and has been featured on NBC, PBS, Nat Geo, the History Channel, the Weather Channel, and more. You may remember the recent GeoTrek podcast on DAS technology and cellular connectivity that just launched in February 2022. The guest for that popular podcast episode, Jonathan Foyer, is Karen Bolter's fiance. They're both taking on important topics for disaster resiliency in different professional fields. Now let's join in on my conversation with Dr. Bolter that was recorded on location in Coral Springs, Florida in January of 2022.
Hey everyone, I'm here with Dr. Karen Bolter in Coral Springs, Florida today. It's a beautiful, sunny day. Karen, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. Hey Hal, Dr. Hal, it's great to be here. Thank you so Um, much. I'm so excited to talk to you. We've known each other for a number of years now and you're so interested in sea level rise and and just a lot of these environmental, environmental issues. So it's really exciting to be here with you in South Florida today to talk about this. Yes, anything related to climate change, sea level rise, it's my passion. So let, let's start this off. I mean, we're actually recording this kind of on the street where you grew up, right? You're from the, not only from this town, but really from this area where we're recording today. Could you kind of walk us through uh, where you grew up, where you went to school, and were you interested in environmental stuff and, and climate stuff back then, or has that been kind of a newer thing? Yeah, I've always known that this was my passion. It's really, like you said, my I, li- I live where I grew up. My dad lives across the street in my childhood home. And we used to have an RV and every summer we would go to all the national parks and hiking and seeing nature. I always knew that what I was going to do was going to be related to the environment. And then when I learned about climate change, I was like, this is the big deal. This is one that can really <laughs> mess Wait, us up. So your family used to travel a lot. I'm thinking like, say, in the summer times, going to national parks, things like that. Yeah, we did a lot of amazing trips. The Rocky Mountains, the Smoky Mountains, Canadian Rockies. When you think back to that time of your life, was there one trip that stands out or one place you went to that you're like just amazed by or maybe really, you know, got you hooked that you want to work in environmental studies? Yeah, it was actually a trip to Alaska where seeing all of the glaciers and all the ice, it was just the beauty of those of those mountains was inspiring. And that's when that was my senior year. So I was applying to colleges and I actually didn't even apply to a Florida college. I wanted to get out of Florida. Do you think partly because your family traveled so much, you kind of viewed the world as kind of this open place and maybe less scary than maybe a kid that wouldn't have traveled? Absolutely. I have a global family. They're from Israel and I I really wanted to study somewhere. You know, I, I used to backpack around Europe in high school, so I, I really wanted to be in Boston. So I ended up at Tufts University, which was amazing to study engineering there. Wait, so how did you decide what you wanted to study? Was that something you had to wrestle through, or did you just did you know you wanted to go down the science engineering route? I knew I wanted to do environmental, and so for Tufts, I applied to the environmental engineering program, so I ended up in engineering, but it was wonderful. And they also have a great study abroad program, which made it really easy for me to spend my junior year in England, and that really set the track of my life because I met my ex-husband there and ended up living in London for five years. Wow, I didn't know that. So were you able to do some interesting science work at that time or was it more of a, a cross-cultural experience or kind of some some of both? Uh, <laughs> that, that part of, that was a phase of my life that was uh, more family oriented because I ended up getting pregnant and then I had another child. So um, it was a little bit frustrating that I was like, I worked so hard. I was so academically ambitious all of all of my high school and college. And then all of a sudden, here I am, a stay-at-home mom with a baby and a toddler. And so that's kind of where I was disappointed that I wasn't really going where I wanted to go professionally. But when we moved back to Florida um, in 2006, I started at Florida Atlantic University 
doing my master's in environmental science. So that's when I got back on track. Well, and that's really an interesting time too, because um, for those of you keeping score, 2004 and 2005 were really terrible hurricane years along the Gulf and the Southeast Atlantic. Florida was getting pounded. So you were kind of coming back to Florida in this sense of where you're interested in environmental things and hurricanes and coastal flooding was like a huge issue, especially at that time. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a great time to get into the field. And the Southeast Florida Climate Change Compact was getting together around then. So there was definitely a lot of activism and ways that I could really get involved. Anything climate related, I was there, I was networking, I was meeting people. And so through nine, 10 years that I was doing my master's and my PhD, everything I did was related to climate change and and communication and outreach. It was amazing. Karen, when I think of you, I often think of the phrase uh, sea level rise. Was that something that you were looking at right away with some of this climate change work you did? Or did sea level rise kind of come in later? Sea level rise became a huge focus when I was doing my PhD research because I really started to do like a more GIS modeling approach. But I also wanted to look at you know, perception. So I came up with this amazing thesis where I was comparing the perceived risk to the actual risk to sea level rise. So I modeled the risk and then I asked 500 Broward County residents what they think about their risk. How high do you live above sea level? How far do you have to dig till you get to our drinking water supply? And so I knew where they lived so that I could actually model what their actual risk was. And I found that people have no idea. (laughs) That's basically what the results were. So you actually knew what their risk was. You knew what their elevation was. You knew the answer to these questions. But then it was more of a social science project where you asked 500 residents these questions. Did their answers really surprise you? They, They surprised me because they were like a lot of people thought that they lived you know, below sea level, which can't happen here in South Florida. I mean, you know, the the water table is actually above sea level. So nothing is below sea level. Um, There was, you know, a lot of, actually the open-ended questions of my survey gave me the most insight because there were a lot of themes and a lot of misconceptions. People really identified to where they live. For example, I live on the ridge. I live by a canal. I live by the Everglades. And then they also identified with something that they'd experienced. Like they remember during Hurricane Sandy when our coastal roadway basically fell into the ocean. So what I found from that was that communicating about sea level rise is not just maps and data and conceptual global concepts. Like when we're communicating with people, we need to really speak to their experience and their local geography. And probably a lot with their local perception, right? Like how do they see the world and how can we speak into that, right? Exactly, because it's very politicized, unfortunately. Like there were some people that took my survey and were very angry that, <laughs> that I was even doing it. I mean, there's there's so much denial and it's and it's definitely a political thing. So it's frustrating that, you know, it's not a matter of if the sea level will rise, it's when. And we're seeing some really dramatic king tides and flood events more and more here in South Florida. You know, the Gulf Stream is slowing down 
And um, it's really important. That's, I think, a big part of my outreach is taking people and showing them that it's flooding. Like, this is a sunny day, and just because of the high tide and it's the fall, there's two feet of water in the street. So it's really important to kind of give a snapshot of what things, you know, that's an opportunity to show what things could look like, not just during the king tide, but twice a day, you know, in the coming decades. Karen, could you share a little bit about the king tides, what they are, uh, what the impacts are, uh, what people should know about this? Yeah, so when I think with sea level rise, one uh, one thing with communicating it that doesn't work is that we say, oh, out in 2100, or we say one foot, two feet, three feet, when in reality, there's a tidal range that's several feet every day. So it's important to look at the extremes and kind of like days per year of flooding. And that's where the king tide comes in because during in South Florida, during the fall, when the sun and the moon and the earth are aligned, that's when you get the highest tides of the year. And it's a, it's a sunny day and water just keeps, you know, flooding the streets. So it's a, it, when I talk to people who live, especially along the coast, they tell me I've lived here for decades and it's never been this bad. Like now, every time there's a full moon, I'm getting my dock completely covered. The water comes into my yard. Like it's been a real wake up call to people, no matter what their political affiliation is. It's like, you can't argue whether the sea level rises or not, this is happening. (laughs) And when you say sunny day flooding, you mean you're out here, there's sunshine, there's no rain, but there's flood water in the streets or going up into people's yards. Right, yeah, the water's going the wrong way up through the drains because the ocean is higher than the land. I mean, that's basically what it is. Wow. So, um, and it sounds like that's something that people are seeing and they're observing. And, and like you said, it's hard to fight the observations. It's hard to fight those pictures and videos that are really happening. No, you can't argue with what you're seeing. It's, it's, a, it's a wake-up call and it's a really good communication point. That's why I like sea level rise too. You know, sometimes climate change can be, or global warming, people there's a stigma but you know coastal flooding is is something that you can talk about the economics and the and it's a lot easier to measure and to have certainty about what's been happening and what the future has in store. And you mentioned as well, maybe taking certain thresholds and looking at the number of hours or number of days that water gets over that threshold. So would that be, for example, you know, a, a key uh, water level in a community and just saying if it gets higher than this, there's a big impact and, and kind of starting to look at the frequency of that or how often it happens? Exactly. There's so many thresholds and tipping points. Uh, days per year is a great measurement. And, you know, it's something to gauge with the community, like how many days per year will you tolerate water in your yard? And then what about when water gets into the house? And then another threshold has to do with the land elevation, because, for example, the city of Fort Lauderdale, most of the land is between four and six feet above sea level. So we have this false sense of security because up to about three feet, there's really, you know, it's a nuisance here and there. It's a little bit harder to drain. There's issues with groundwater, but it's really going to be when we get to, for each location, when the majority of land is in a certain increment of elevation, when the water gets up to that elevation, you just have like widespread swaths of permanent inundation. I mean, that's really what we need to prepare for that takes a long time to prepare. So in other words, there's going to be a threshold out there where maybe the majority of land is underwater and some some roads in some low areas are under maybe multiple feet of water. Exactly, yeah. yeah. 
Um, that's interesting. So how do we know where those thresholds are, where those tipping points are? Is it very localized? Does it change community by community? Yeah, it definitely changes by community. You know, we have in South Florida, a coastal ridge with very high land. And then obviously along the intercoastal, you know, those are very, it's very low. East of the intercoastal along our barrier islands, the dunes are very high. Like a lot of the beaches are 10 to 12 feet above sea level. But the problem is you have erosion, right? So it really depends. Like there's a whole typology of going from east to west, from the Everglades to the ocean of vulnerabilities. The areas to the west, anything west of I-95 historically was a swamp. It was the Everglades. And so everything has been filled. I mean, here we're at my house on a canal. There's thousands of miles of canals. And the reason that they're there is because they dredged out the canals. They dug out this fill. They used the the soil, the fill, to kind of build up the found, you know, our yards and our homes. And so that's the reason, I mean, the, the water management down here is so complex. That's tremendous because when we look at a map of South Florida, I mean, if you zoom out far enough, it almost looks like I-95 hugs the coast. And then a lot of land, the majority of land is west of that. You're saying almost all of that used to be Everglades or swamp or really low waterlogged ground. Right. Yeah. The only way to develop was to to dig out these canals and dredge and fill. And, you know, what you said earlier about, like, how do we know what the what the area is? I mean, there's an amazing amount of tools out there, online tools that are really easy, like as simple as Google Maps. NOAA has the sea level rise viewer and the coastal flood exposure mapper. Those are amazing. So you could put in an address or a city and you can actually, you know, they have a slider bar where you raise up one feet, two feet, three feet, and you can really see what's going to happen. So you can easily identify your risk and understand your your local area, but people don't know about these tools. I hope the listeners will will try them out. They're really fun. Well, that's why I was so excited to talk with you. I know you're, you're always on the cutting edge and really in the loop with the latest technology and the latest tools that people can use to help make decisions. Yeah, I love to share information. I mean, I talk to a lot of people about this and I have... Um, some very common responses and the you know people are say you're a climate scientist when should i sell my house <laughs> you know like that's one of the first questions and i tell them about the tools and i tell them that it's not just about you know one increment of sea level rise it's going to be more and more extremes and that if we live further inland it's not just storm surge and coastal flooding it's about the stormwater drainage and we have a very very high water table like where i live right now i live on the westernmost city right on the edge of the everglades there's sometimes that we drive along the highway along the everglades and there's standing water you know in those ditches it hasn't rained in weeks that's our groundwater that's just <laughs> your ground level your groundwater is really right below the ground level in some some cases like you really don't have much much buffer or much wiggle room right that's why there's no basements that's why it's so hard to dig underground because there yeah i mean even though we dredged and filled everything the soil and the land didn't forget that it's swamp soil i mean it's it's very porous it's limestone and and it's 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 it gets really wet and saturated, especially when there's been heavy rainfall. I mean, I see a lot of times the foundation of a house will start to crack. You know, people will empty out their swimming pool and the shell will just pop out because of that groundwater that's pushing it. So there's a, there's a lot of issues happening. And 
So it's not just about, you know, when the sea level is this high, your house is going to be underwater. It's a lot more complicated than that. And it seems like even long before the sea level actually reaches your house, it, it, there are some complex interactions, right? If if the water level is really high, if the water table is high, you're just not going to get a lot of drainage when the heavy rains come. So Karen, we're talking about these maps, these thresholds, these tipping points. You know, I've noticed sometimes people look at a map of sea level rise projections and they say, wow, the sea level is encroaching on my house, but I'm still going to be dry in 50 years and but it's more complex than that right it's more complex than just a line on a map right exactly because there's the days per year there's the extreme events and not only that it's it's really good to know your parcel level risk but in reality your household and your well-being goes well way beyond your property right there's ingress and egress from your neighborhood there's your water wastewater electric utility services, your internet. I mean, if you're not able, if these services are not able to be provided, I mean, maybe there's some kind of vulnerabilities there. And, and there certainly are because that's our, why do we have an infrastructure bill right now? I mean, we're getting D's and F's all over the country for this essential infrastructure. So these critical lifelines are so important. And so just because, you know, if you live very, very high out of the storm surge zone, it doesn't mean that you're safe. Well, think about in every flood too, we see cars being carried away in the floodwaters, right? So even if your house is dry, uh, think about those those low-lying areas you maybe have to drive through to get your kids from school or to pick up groceries, right? Exactly, exactly. So connectivity and also access to healthcare is a huge one. A lot of the projects I work on are, are related to health and emergency management, and it's a huge concern. That's interesting. So maybe how does that affect people when they look at these maps? They, they look at these projections going forward. I mean, how should they think about the, these maps when they're looking at future inundation compared to maybe where they live? I think that the maps are a wonderful tool, but you know they have disclaimers and we have to think about the caveats and the systems. So the map is a good tool to kind of understand elevation, but that's only one part of the story. So doing more research and thinking about, you know, my job with a with a nonprofit Deltares, we do a lot of different work on cascading impacts. So it's these like indirect things that you wouldn't even think about, these unintended consequences that all of a sudden, you know, the port, people can't get into the port, they can't deliver fuel, we don't have electricity, we don't have gas, you know, there's all these, these interconnections that can impact us that we don't even think about. So that's really looking at this as a system, right? And saying, well, even if my house is dry and my road is dry, if I can't get gas in the gas station because the port was shut down or, or something like that. So all of this stuff is really connected. Exactly. Yeah. Or being able to get to healthcare services. Yeah, that's interesting. So it really an interconnectivity of all this is, I think, really important to think about this. And also, you know, we've seen along the Gulf Coast a lot of what we call compound floods, where you have heightened sea levels on an onshore wind, but then you also get maybe 8, 10, 12 inches of rain, right? So even if salt water isn't on your property, if it's close and you get 10 inches of rain, that rain might not be able to drain, right? Exactly. There's water coming from every direction. It comes from the Everglades to the, to the west. It come, falls from the sky. It's, in, it's coming up from the ground and it comes in from the ocean. So we have water in every direction. And, you know, really good that you mentioned too, that the soil is so porous here. So water can really come right through the soil. So in South Florida, even if you build a seawall, sometimes the water can come underneath that. Is that correct? 
Yeah, it's a huge issue. I mean, we have this big Army Corps project that just came out with this idea to put storm surge barriers and, you know, high walls all along Miami. And it's like, well, how is that going to keep the groundwater out? I see. So you do have the water coming up from underneath. And like you said, that can come through drains. There can be a lot of complex interactions. Absolutely. Yeah. Karen, I know you also like to get out in the community. We talked about King Tides. I know you've taken your kids out on King Tides walks where you go around actually measuring and documenting the flooding. Could you talk a little bit about those community outreach events and some of the King Tide walks that you've done? Yeah, actually, this past November was our eighth one in the city of Hollywood. And it's actually the kids who organize it. So it's a bunch of high school kids from a synagogue. We're all Jewish. <laughs> and we, and we go, we, so all the kids get service hours and we have the mayor of Hollywood and commissioners and everybody comes out during the, the highest tide of the year to kind of see how high the water can get and to, to really learn. I mean, one of the things that we did this past year in November was we had little stations. And so the kids went from station to station doing activities like writing letters to their elected officials. And the station that I created with my children was actually a pole. And the pole was about six and a half feet tall, and it went up to 2100. So every decade, there was a flag along the pole for every decade of how high the water could get in the future. And it was really great for kids to take a photo with it, put it on social media, and communication and getting the, you know, outreach, talking about it, really, that's one of the best solutions is awareness. So usually when we have a pole and we're in the flooding, we're measuring distance, we're measuring length, maybe in inches and feet or centimeters. In this case, they were actually converting that over to time and looking at converting those times into future sea levels. Exactly. It was, uh, it, it was very powerful for, for everyone to, to see. Well, and that's interesting too. And it's important to remember when we get a, a king tide or we get a storm surge, we're actually getting a snapshot of a future sea level, right? That will maybe 60 years or 100 years or 200 years down the road. But eventually, if things go the way they're going, that's where sea level will be one day. Yeah. And knowing all of that, I mean, I don't understand how people are still developing in these low-lying, high-risk areas. It's it's only because the developers are running the show, especially down here in South Florida, and it's profit-driven, and they make their money right away. So, and and the cities, unfortunately, you know, they they depend on the tax base, so they kind of have their hands tied. I mean, if they want to have the money to address these issues and adapt, they depend on the tax base. So if we can talk a little bit about that. So if a developer wants to put a new development in a really low-lying area, obviously there's concern about future flooding, but it sounds like you're saying there's, it's, it's complex for the local city to maybe push back against that because if they do that, then they're limiting their tax base. Exactly. And, you know, Broward County is amazing, actually. In, in regulating more than others. There's been a lot of new legislation and there's there was a model done recently of the groundwater. And so they are really getting a lot more stringent for development to make sure that even with future sea level rise and groundwater, that, that things are being built in a robust and sustainable way. Uh, we were talking about groundwater. Is there an issue with the drinkability of water? I mean, from what I've heard, South Florida has this amazing aquifer. Does sea level rise start to threaten that or contaminate it in any way with higher levels of salinity? Yeah, actually in um, Hollandale Beach, they've already had to 
to move a bunch of the groundwater wells inland because they were getting uh, contaminated with salt water. So the salt water is actually a wedge. So as the ocean is pushing higher, the wedge pushes inland and that salt water, it's denser than the fresh water. So the fresh water kind of floats on top and it goes higher and higher. And so you're getting more salt going in. So the salt almost comes in underneath it. The freshwater is almost like a lens on top, but eventually as there's more pressure from the seas, I'm imagining proportionally more and more of that groundwater becomes salty. Yeah, and there's there's a huge concern for water supply for the future. I mean, there's thousands of people moving to Florida every day and the more and more demand for our water supply. So it's water supply is a huge concern. Yeah. So, I mean, what are some of the initiatives out there to, to either, you know, if we're thinking about water supply, if we're thinking about future planning, if we're thinking about, you know, where people live, how we develop, even insurance, you know, all, there's so many different angles to this topic. I know like FEMA has some new funding out there. there there's a lot of different programs. I mean, what are some different things that address these issues? Well, in terms of water supply, conservation is the greatest solution. I mean, a lot of irrigation is happening when it's raining. So there's a lot that we can be doing to kind of control and also control the vegetation to be more salt tolerant or to not need as much water, having those yards without a lawn, just with stones. So that's that's a water supply thing. You mentioned FEMA funding, and actually that's been one of my recent passions because I was doing a lot of climate adaptation planning and seeing that there's way too much planning and not enough action. So in in one of my recent positions, I got into funding infrastructure resilience. And I was able to, within four years, lead the development of FEMA applications that got $85 million awarded to different jurisdictions around Florida, Virginia, Indiana, and the, all this money is for flood proofing, hardening, water, wastewater infrastructure. So that was very fulfilling for me. And I'm very passionate about, you know, federal funding and actually shovels in the ground and getting this stuff done. Did your involvement with the federal funding and helping make those decisions, did it in a sense give you a sense of hope? Like, okay, there are real projects that we can do and that we're taking action on instead of, you know, because sometimes I feel like we can get paralyzed with the, the climate change issues. It can be seem so extensive and, and hopeless, but having specific projects and being involved with that, did that in a sense change your perspective or give you more hope? Absolutely. And especially one of the cities I worked with in Virginia is poverty stricken, disadvantaged black community. And so getting them $11 million for a stormwater pump station in one of the most vulnerable areas, man, that felt good. (laughs) That felt really, really good. I mean, it's more than just helping someone feel inspired or feel hope. It's, It's something that can actually protect people. So it's very fulfilling to do these. Absolutely. And I just hope there's more and more funding coming out all the time. And so we're seeing the importance of it. Well, it seems like the amount of resiliency funding from the federal perspective has really gone up quite a bit. I know there are a lot of different projects with assessing risk. And it sounds like you're saying with uh, actual infrastructure, water treatment plants, things like that, that we can maybe build better or more, more resilient moving forward. Absolutely. There's so much that can be done. And I think just the first step is knowing your risk, knowing the vulnerabilities and prioritizing. Like, And also the, the FEMA funding, it's all about switching from being reactive to being preventative. Because what they've found is that every dollar you spend on preventing a hazard is on average saving you $6 of money that you would have spent 
after the fact, after a disaster happened. And with water, wastewater infrastructure, that ratio is like $31 saved. So, you know, that with the funding, you have to show that the project is cost effective. I see a lot of cities just doing projects on a whim, like thinking, oh, there's a need here, but is it cost effective? So actually looking at future events and past events and what the what the losses were and doing the math, you know, and okay, was it is it cost effective? And it sounds like you can run a lot of numbers with this and say actually this this project we think will save a lot of money and and like you said for every dollar invested in resiliency you may save $6 or more um, moving ahead in recovery, right? So it can really justify the the use of these projects. Yeah, and there's there's tools coming out that are you know quantifying the value of things like green infrastructure. I mean, for a project to be eligible for FEMA funding, it has to be at least a benefit cost ratio higher than one. So at least the benefits outweigh the costs. Karen, it's so encouraging to see your passion for this and your involvement. That's really cool that you got to be involved with kind of the funding stream of all that and actually see real projects that are making a difference. But you've also been involved in a lot of different outreach efforts. I know you were involved with, I think, several TED Talks and Jack Black uh, thing going on. Could you explain a little bit about some of those fun things that you got to do? Yeah, I love sharing and and I really feel like one of the best solutions is increasing awareness and inspiring people. So I've gotten very active and anytime I'm asked to present, I go and I guess word has gotten around because yeah, I did my second TED Talk last year. The first one in 2013 was about um, myth busting and sea level rise misconceptions where I talked about things like the water table. The one that I did last year was more about mindfulness and well-being and just the emotional aspect of thinking about climate change. And, you know, it's very easy to get discouraged or to feel helpless and doom and gloom. And so I, I was sharing about, you know, how to be inspired and how to feel good about talking about the issues and inspi- it's going to take a movement. It's not just policy. It's not just economics. It's actually going to be an, a movement of, of our humanity that's going in this direction that we need to change, that things are not working anymore. And really, that's our only hope. So we have to keep it positive. I mean, people say, isn't this depressing what you do? And I can't feel depressed. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I, I have children and I love this world. I love where I live. And I just want to do everything I can to keep it safe and to be prepared. That's all I can do. I'm doing my best. Yeah, that's great. And that's inspirational. Okay, Karen, personal question. I've seen you speak before. You're an amazing science communicator. How do you connect so well with your audience? I mean, do you have any secrets you can give to young scientists out there? seems like you're always really well connected to your audience. How do you do that? Well, I think the, the, the first TED Talk I did, I had amazing coaching to not keep things into scientific terms. Climate scientists, we like to use words like adaptation, resilience, sustainability. Like you have to really just speak simple terms and real world case studies. And I think another part is it's not about me. I'm not trying to look good. I'm not trying to sound smart. I'm just doing my thing and trying to work with people and connect. And everybody has something of value that we can put together and to grow and to to do more. 
Yeah, that's true. And, and that's a good point. Everybody has something of value. And I think, you know, uh, I've, I've heard people that are climate communicators say as well, they're connecting in with people's way of life. They're saying like, hey, you know that you like to get outside and be active with your kids or you know that you, you know, the different things that people really connect with in life, you know, kind of connecting in with that when we give talks, when we share with them, maybe not sharing as much jargon, but trying to connect with, with the audience the best way we can. Exactly. I mean, whether you're talking about the you know, the sea turtle nesting habitats or disadvantaged communities in low-lying areas or the economic impacts or the health impacts or hope for future generations. Like, you know, different people are going to have a, a, a listening for something different that's going to get them to care. And really, that's what it's all about. Karen, thanks so much. That is uh, that's hopeful and inspirational. So when you look at the bird's eye view of climate change, sea level rise in this area of South Florida, what are one or two take home points that people should be thinking about? Say they're looking to buy a house or just they're, they're thinking about the life for themselves and their family moving forward. What are one or two applications that, that really apply to a lot of people down here? Well, I would say that if you're thinking of buying a home, you should definitely check the elevation, check the flood zone, make sure you really understand because there's not a lot of disclosure laws from realtors. So you have to do your own homework. You know, FEMA has these uh, designations for repetitive loss properties and all that information is private. And now they're changing the flood insurance program. So, you know, I was talking about thresholds before and there's a lot of physical thresholds with, you know, just water levels, but there's also thresholds like when are insurance prices going to start limiting property value, right? So I would say definitely know your risk um, is one thing. And then another one is just talk to people, talk about this to everyone you know, on social media, follow some people, read the articles, stay in touch because every day there's new information coming out. And the more people are talking about this, the more we're going to cultivate that movement. So if you can talk about sea level rise every day, the more people that do that, the better. Well, I'm thinking back to your King Tide walks where this is very publicized. It's really the initiative is led by the by the children. The mayor's involved. This has to be hitting the news. This has to be hitting anyone on, on social media. So it sounds like part of this is just being aware, just kind of being open to to seeing what's going on in the community already. It sounds like a lot of the information's already out there as far as maybe historical floods and, and different risks. It's just people maybe doing their homework and doing their due diligence to kind of um, investigate this for, their, for themselves and their own property. Right. There's... There, there is so much out there and there's so much that's being done and there's so much more to do. It's getting involved in whatever way possible is what I would encourage. There's so many amazing groups. We have the Citizens Climate Lobby. We have the Climate Reality, a bunch of groups down here in South Florida. And so you can connect with people. We have really fun events and it's just a way to... It, a lot of these events, unfortunately, we're preaching to the choir because it's always the same people. So that's where I think talking to other people and getting people that, you know, it doesn't matter. Just other, everyone needs to be involved, not just our small, tiny group. <laughs> I'm guessing a lot of those groups would be visible on social media, right? And probably have information available how people could join a meeting or, or just meet up with people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you, you know, Google Citizens Climate Lobby, you'll see all the chapters. They're international. 
Karen, I appreciate you taking time. Um, I always love your passion for this and just educating us and, and kind of simplifying it into a couple of things that people should be thinking about and doing. And like you said, that people should really uh, take the time to, to do a little of their own research, understand their elevation, kind of start there. You know, we, we can't always wait for a realtor to, to tell us what we need to know or for a developer or something like that. Some of this, I think we have to take individual responsibility to know for our own property, right? Exactly. Thanks for this opportunity, Hal. I mean, I I think you're just one of the best friends and I love your attitude and I'm so proud of you, everything you've done. My hurricane, Hal. (laughs) Thanks, Karen. Well, hey, we'll be in touch. And everybody, uh, when we are done with this podcast, I'll uh, I'll include a little segment here, how you can get in touch with Karen, how you can follow her exciting research and journeys here in South Florida and beyond. Thanks so much, Karen, for coming on GeoTrack and we're excited to see uh, what happens for you in the future. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Karen, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. Your passion for climate science and the environment really shines through on this episode. Dr. Bolter provided us with some valuable perspectives on this podcast. She shared that our coastal communities are quite complex and interconnected. Even if sea level rise does not inundate your home in the near future, increased inundation of low-lying areas may block your transportation routes, access to healthcare, portions of the economy, and even the flow of goods through local ports. Her passion for education and awareness was evident in this episode. In Broward County, Karen has participated in King Tide Walks with her community for eight years now. She shared how engaged the community is in these types of events with participation ranging from children, like her own kids, all the way up to the mayor's office. Dr. Bolter gave some pieces of advice for us related to planning for sea level rise. She mentioned several credible web tools that are available for the public and also stressed the importance of individuals taking ownership to know as much as they can, including the elevation of their home. I wanted to briefly touch on that topic. I work extensively in coastal communities from the Carolinas to Florida to Texas on coastal flood risk and awareness. One of the most common mistakes I see in these communities is that homeowners assume the elevation given on their elevation certificate, an official document provided by surveyors or engineers, provides their height above sea level. It does not. If you have an elevation certificate for your home, the elevation is measured above an arbitrary line called a datum. The elevation of my ground where I live in Galveston, Texas is nine feet, but mean sea level is around one and a half feet and high tide around two feet on that same system. So I'm not nine feet above mean sea level. I'm seven and a half feet above mean sea level and around seven feet above high tide. This means I'm around two feet closer to the water than most people would assume if they looked at my elevation certificate. In most coastal communities, I found that people are generally one to two feet closer to the water than they realized. This explains why a seven-foot storm surge could flood my ground, which is at nine feet. The storm surge is added to high tide, which is generally at two feet where I live, not at zero. And this changes from community to community, but uh, the big picture here is that a lot of times people don't really know how high they are above the water. We don't have time to go into this with more detail than that. The big picture is that it's important to know our elevation above the water, and many people are uh, misled or misunderstand this. This is where coastal scientists can help convert these numbers and help people understand their risk much better. Feel free to reach out to Dr. Bolter with questions like these. She's very approachable and has a deep passion to help people understand their flood risk better. I'm also always available if you have questions or want to engage about these topics. One of the main projects I'm working on is called Flood Information Systems. And with that project, we're constantly working with coastal communities to map and communicate flood risk. 
You can find us on the web at floodinformationsystems.com. I'd be happy to engage with you and answer any questions. Dr. Bolter, thank you again so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. We're so excited to see where your career takes you as you help disaster-prone communities become safer and more resilient. On behalf of the GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hal Needham. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal. Thank you so much for listening to the GeoTrek podcast. If you're wondering how we come up with such interesting topics each week, we rely on an amazing global community to help direct our scientific fieldwork, articles, and podcasts. If you have an idea for a topic or can connect us to an outstanding future podcast guest, please reach out to us on our website at geo-trek.com or on our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. On behalf of our GeoTrek production, Production team, this is Dr. Hal. I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.